This week on the show, we have FreeBSD 12.2 available and we look at the release notes for you. We announced the ZFS webinar that Clara System does in a couple weeks. Uh, the enhanced syscaller support for NetBSD is a Google Summer of Code project report that we cover. The introduction of OpenBSD stable package building is what we have. OpenSense 20.7.4 is being released and more, all in this episode of BSD. Now, episode 376, Build Stable Packages, recorded for the 4th of November 2020. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to get the online backup for the truly paranoids. Hello, we're your hosts, Benedict Reuschling. And Alan Jude. Welcome, everyone, to this little episode of us, like usual, and uh, we are Happy to give you the headlines this week, as always, with FreeBSD 12.2 being released. Yeah, uh, so if you go over to the change log, our release notes, it uh, has some of the interesting new things, including some user space stuff like rc.conf now has a new variable, Linux mounts enable, which controls if the Linux-specific file systems are mounted in, say, slash compat slash Linux and so on, which also depends on the Linux underscore enable, which loads the Linux compatibility kernel module that allows you to run unmodified Linux applications on FreeBSD. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, also, devd has been changed. Uh, so the default syslog uh, notification for resuming a change from kern to kernel to be more consistent. Interesting, other couple of changes. Uh, cron now has support uh, for two new flags, dash n and dash q, which suppress mail on successful runs and suppress logging of the command execution, respectively. So uh, you can configure cron to send less email or log less, especially if you're, you know, having stuff that runs every minute, you maybe don't need to log that. Yeah, but excessive. Yeah, um, a bunch of improvements to the DD utility, uh, which includes the I flag and O flags extensions. Uh, so when you're copying data, you can do conv equals fsync or fdatasync uh, to control whether it does a, you know, if DD waits for the data to be all the way on the thing before it exits, or if it allows the OS to deal with that. And so on the output flag, you can specify fsync or sync. So sync will wait for each block as it does it, whereas I think fsync will just do it once at the end, which is usually what you want, but can be handy when you're writing to a USB stick, especially certain ones that are slow you want to uh, make sure the DD command has, after it sent all the data to the device, that has all actually arrived on the device before you pull the USB stick out and so on. Yeah, important. There's also the iFlag full block, which will cause DD to read in an entire block. So if normally it'll try to read the block size, but if there's not that much data, it'll just take what's there and then put it to the output in the meantime. But with this setting, it will wait until it has read an entire block before it tries to write. Uh, which can be helpful depending on how you're trying to use it. A bunch of other changes, including uh, the FSCK for MS-DOSFS has been updated. The show mount command has been updated to uh, support long options. Critically, one of the new things is CertCTL, uh, which is a project I started, I don't know, at VBSDCon a couple of years ago after uh, talking to uh, some other sysadmins who were managing FreeBSD in a corporate environment where they needed to trust their own certificates as well for like uh, 
an SSL interception appliance or whatever. And so uh, what SearchCTL does is first, what I did was take the Mozilla certificate bundle, the CA root NSS, uh, and break it up into the separate certificates instead of one big file and include that as part of the FreeBSD operating system and then provide this CertCTL tool which allows you to specifically add other certificates of your own to the trust store and to specifically distrust certificates. So you can distrust some of the ones that are included in the Mozilla bundle if you don't like them or whatever, and you can add your own, uh, you know, if you need to trust your own certificates for whether it's, a, you know, basically a self-signed certificate for your management system or if it's for uh, your security appliance or whatever reason you might have to have your own certificates, it allows you to manage them. Okay, check out the man page for uh, more details. Yeah, and huge thanks to Kyle Evans, who we interviewed a couple of weeks ago, including talking a bit about CTL for actually getting all that finished, because otherwise it would still be sitting there half done, never finished. The MountD, which is part of NFS, uh, has been updated to fix incorrect root listing under certain conditions when you're using map root or map all on an export line, which is Nice. Uh, Sesutil has also been updated to include a show subcommand, which uh, prints out the data in a more user-friendly way. Originally, it had a map command that was very detailed, uh, but this show command, which uh, was sponsored by my company, Clara, makes it easy to see what drives you have attached to the system in a, you know, it's designed for human consumption, whereas the map output is more, uh, you know, with the libxo support, can give you a big JSON blob, tell you everything about everything that's attached. But sometimes you're just like, what drives, how big are they, and are they multipath? <laughs> yeah. uh, so that's now part of 12.2. Cool. Uh, and the jail utility was updated to allow running Linux uh, stuff in a jailed environment. Oh, also good to have a bit of uh, control there for the penguins don't running wild. Yep. Uh, then a bunch of the contributed software has been updated, new versions of TCSH, less. Um, the XML parsing library, ResolveConf, PCAP and TCP dump, mtree, xsed, OpenSSH, Unbound, LibArchive, NTPD, SVN Lite, um, the file command, the BC command, uh, BSD make, send mail, netcat, clang, LLVM, etc., etc., and the latest OpenSSL 1.1.1H. Uh, there's one deprecation notice added the AMD, the auto mounter auto mounting demon uh has been marked deprecated and is target for removal in 13.0 we have the i think it's called auto fs, auto FS. the replacement it is yeah the if config library so lib if config has been updated to report the status of bridge interfaces similar to how it can do for lag interfaces um still quite a bit of work going on in that one but interesting ah one other big change is that the read system call has been changed to disable uh calling read on a directory which was never supposed to really work. Uh, however, there is a cctl security.bsd.allowreader, uh, which when set to one, gives you back the old behavior if you needed it. But uh, while some people argued it was useful for disaster recovery of UFS or something, it's generally not something you need to worry about. Okay. Ah, another uh, bit of work that we sponsored was the Vertio block driver in that FreeBSD uses when it's a guest in any hypervisor that uses Vertio, mm. uh, now has trim support. Ah, so uh, when FreeBSD is running in as guest and you delete stuff with UFS or ZFS, it can send a trim command to the hypervisor, which can then know to free the space. Uh, separately, we also have the commit where we made Beehive support the other side of it. 
so that if your VM is running off a of zvol, it will actually free the space when it gets that trim command from the guest, whether that guest is Linux or FreeBSD or Windows or whatever. Then the other bit of work we sponsored recently was the ZFS file systems updated to include the read and write case stats on a per dataset basis. Um, so there's now a tree in sysctl, ksat.zfs.yourpoolname.dataset, and it will have a subtree for each dataset based on its object ID. Uh, and in there, you will see the number and amount of reads and the number and amount of writes. Oh, so nice. you'll see, you know, you did a thousand write IOPS for a total of 200 megabytes or whatever. And those counters just go up from zero after each reboot or each import of the pool. This allows you to figure out which data set is causing all this usage. So in the rather common setup where you have a separate data set for each customer, you can tell which customers are causing your disks to be busy and so on. <laughs> yeah, let's plot that and look at the graphs. Yeah, then. or, you know, <laughs> as we were just talking about, if you use a Zvault for each beehive, right, uh, yeah. you can tell which one's causing all the usage and so on. Who should be built, yeah. <laughs> More than others. Um, <laughs> yeah, so uh, important when you do that uh, upgrade, also make sure that you update your pool and the boot part of your pool if you boot from that because of the new feature being added to the pool you need to make sure that the boot code is written to the uh, uh yes uh, i guess that's wasn't actually mentioned in the change log here but yes the other big thing that 12.2 has uh it adds the new zfs feature um the special vdev or metadata classes it's called uh so this allows you to have a dedicated set of vdevs in your pool that are just for storing metadata or optionally also small blocks so you can take a pair of SSDs and attach them to your pool as this special VDEV. Uh, and then when you write files, the metadata, like, you know, the directory contents and, you know, the last accessed and modified and created time of the file and how big the file is and all the metadata ZFS has to keep, it will be stored on the SSD, but the data blocks will be on, say, your spinning drives. Um, and so this can end up making... Uh, especially metadata operations like, you know, the find command or running rsync or anything like that faster because you access the metadata quickly. And then generally when you're accessing the data, you're doing it in big blocks, which hard drives are good at. But reading a bunch of small blocks scattered all over the place, hard drives are not so good at. And SSDs are. Uh, so putting all the small metadata on the SSDs and the rest of the data on the hard drives is a nice improvement. Big things to remember you want to mirror those because if you lose the metadata VDEV, you've lost all the metadata uh, and you know having the data is pretty much useless at that point. Because <laughs> uh, part of the metadata in ZFS is knowing that you know the second megabyte of this file is at this offset on this hard drive. If you lose that, then you just have a bunch of data and you don't know what's what. Yeah, that's not the <clears throat> best. And not useful. Uh, the other thing is if you add this to an existing pool, only newly written files are going to put their metadata on the special VDEV. Uh, so you might need to send receive data to move it over or just wait for your data to get modified over time uh, to migrate to that SSD. I think there are also a couple of errata things coming up. So like in the release notes, they have the errata list and that's everything that's been fixed since 12.1. But I do believe there are a couple of known issues with 12.2 already. Oh. Uh, ah, yes, there's a regression with IPFW where if you want to use the forward rules to forward to multiple IP addresses on the same interface, there's a, a problem there. Specifically, I think it ends up going to a random port number uh, because of some stack corruption. Anyway, there's a, a link to the PR that explains what the problem is uh, and 
the fix has been merged. And I think it will come out as 12.2 P1 uh, shortly. Okay. Um, there's also a similar issue. Um, if you're doing ZFS send receive and you're expecting ZFS to take care of deleting old snapshots, uh, there's a problem with that and that'll be fixed as well. Uh, and there's a small regression. If you have a beagle bone uh, where the SD card IO takes an excessive amount of time, because of that, there's no beagle bone images made for 12.2 at this point. Mm -hmm. And for the GNOME people out there, there was a very late issue discovered with X11 GDM, the GNOME Display Manager. Uh, that package included on the AMD64 and i386 DVD installers causes GDM to fail to start properly. And if you're installing GNOME as a new installation from the DVD, you should upgrade uh, GDM from the upstream package mirrors after the installation. Yeah, basically. The, if, in case you didn't know, the DVD1 distribution, like if you go to download FreeBSD, we have a couple of different options. One of them is the DVD. That DVD includes a selection of packages so that you can build a system that has no access to the internet or whatever. And that happened to have got a, a broken version of GDM, the GNOME desktop manager. It's the login screen program, basically. And so, yeah, if you just get a newer package for that one thing, it'll solve the problem. Okay. So yeah, uh, thanks to everyone who helped make this release a reality and everyone who contributed code and patches, updates. And yeah, people should update definitely and make sure to make a uh, uh, you know snapshot, of course, and a boot environment for everything that could go wrong if you're on ZFS, of course. And then it should be a smooth sailing into the 12.2 world. Okay, then next we have a information or more of an announcement about the ZFS webinar in uh, on November 18th from Clara Systems. Yeah, so November 18th at noon Eastern, uh, or that's 9 a.m. Pacific or 6 p.m. Central European time, I'll be hosting a uh, best practices of ZFS webinar uh, where we'll go over, you know, how to build your storage array, picking the right hardware, do, choosing the right layout, whether it should be RAID Z or mirrors and We'll talk about those special metadata class VDEVs that we just uh, talked about in the previous story and all that kind of stuff. We'll also talk about keeping up with data growth, uh, how to actually plan for and expand your pool as your storage needs increase, and also a little bit about the device evacuation feature in case you ever need to shrink a pool and what some of the caveats there are and how you can plan your pool to be able to expand it and possibly contract it if needed. And you know, a lot of that really depends on making the right decisions early on when building the pool. And so helping people understand that so that they set themselves up to be able to do these things later rather than end up being like, oh, you have to build a new pool if you want to be able to do that. And then uh, we'll also get into a little bit about data sets and properties more into that. And then there'll be you know, another webinar later on that'll get into even more of the best practices. Oh, excellent. So that's uh, recorded, I think. Yep. Uh, so it'll be live on that day. Uh, but if you register, you'll also be able to get the recording. Mm -hmm. Oh, very good. So thanks, Clara, for that. And I guess that's not just one part or the only part. There will be more coming in the future because ZFS has a lot more than you could cover in a single webinar. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think just best practices on basic stuff is going to end up being three separate webinars yeah right there's a lot of stuff to cover but uh it's good to get started with something and the things you have uh in the data set space for example are already some good practices you can apply in your daily zfs administration yeah like uh, in the end you know we could do a whole webinar just on databases <laughs> sure yeah <laughs> easily <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, time for the news roundup this week. We have a story from Google Summer of Code as a final report about enhancing the syscaller support for NetBSD. So over on the NetBSD blog, we have uh, Camille Rutarowski um, writing um, a report by Ayushu Sharma, I think that's how it's pronounced, uh, about uh, Google Summer of Code 2020, which concluded. And there is the result here. So the, uh, we covered uh, earlier reports, uh, first and second ones. They are linked from the blog post as well. And the summaries uh, or summarizes the work done during the third and final coding period of Google Summer of Code. And the overall project was to enhance syscaller support for NetBSD. So here is uh, sys2zis with a Z at the end. Uh, sys2zis would give an extra edge to syscaller for NetBSD. It has a potential of efficiently automating the conversion of syscall definitions of syscaller's grammar or to syscaller's grammar. This can aid in increasing the number of syscalls covered by syscaller significantly with the minimum possibility of manual errors. Let's delve into the internals. So the internals have um, that this tool parses the source code of device drivers present in C to a format which is compatible with grammar customized for syscaller. Here we try to call the details of the target device by compiling and then co-locate the details of our Python code. Further details uh, about the design for the tool are in a previous post, um, but here they have posted uh, four major steps that the Python code follows. First, there's the uh, extractor Python script uh, that extracts all ioctal commands of a given device driver along with the arguments from the header files. Then there is bare.py, uh, that does the pre-processing of the device driver's files using the compile commands JSON generated during the setup of tools using bare. Then there is c2xml.py, and that is XML's files that are generated by running c2xml on pre-processed device files, and that eases the process of fetching the information related to arguments of commands. And finally, there's description.py, which generates descriptions for the IACTL commands and their arguments, like the built-in types, the arrays, pointers, structures, and unions using the XML files. Ah, I see, okay. So then they talk a bit about each of those steps, uh, extraction, pre-processing, generating XML files, and so on, and give code examples in each of those. And so looking at the result here is that once the setup script for sys to zis, this is kind of hard to pronounce here, but you will see what I mean, uh, is executed once that is done, uh, that can be used for a certain target device file by executing the Python wrapper script. And they show how to do that, the invocation. And that would generate a def underscore with the device driver, whatever it is, .txt file in the output directory. And an example description file auto-generated uh, for the I2C driver uh, looks like the following. They also posted that. And in the future work section is that they, though they have a basic working structure for this tool now, Yet a lot of uh, work has to be done for leveling it up to make it the best. Perfect goals would be met when there would be least of manual labor needed. So sys2sys still looks forward to automating the detection of macros used by the flag types in syscaller. Uh, list to dos also includes extending syscaller support for generating of description of syscalls. And some of the yet to be done tasks include generating descriptions for function types, and calculating attributes for structs and unions. And in summary, they write that we have surely reached closer to our goals, but the project needs active involvement and incremental updates to scale it up to its full potential. 
looking forward to much more learning and making more contribution to NetBSD's community. And they want to give a word of thanks to their mentors, William Coldwell, Siddhartha Murali, Santosh Raju, and Kamil Ritarovsky, as well as the NetBSD organization, for being extremely supportive. Also, they owe a big thanks to Google for giving them such a glaring opportunity to work on this project. Cool. It's always good to see Google Summer of Code um, being successful, both for the projects and for the students who worked on them. And I think uh, this project will also uh, continue to be worked on and maybe the student will stick around and uh, continue to work. Very nice. Then we have a story about how the OpenBSD stable packages are built. So this is over at dataswamp.org. Yeah, so say, uh, this is a long blog post, but I'll write about the technical details uh, of the OpenBSD stable package build infrastructure. I've set up the infrastructure with the help of Theo Durant, who provided me the hardware back in the summer of 2019. And since then, OpenBSD's users can now upgrade their packages using packageadd-u for critical updates that have been backported by the contributors. Many thanks to them. Without their work, there would be no packages to build. And thanks to PEA at OpenBSD, who is my backup for operating this infrastructure in case anything happens or whatever. Apparently, it only ends up needing 110 lines of shell. But of course, you know, it's very specific 110 lines of shell. <laughs> yeah. uh, so in the original pro uh, design, the process was the following. And it was done separately for each different type of machine, you know, AMD 64, ARM 64, i386, Park 64, etc. The first step was to update the porch tree by just doing a CVS up uh, from a cron job and capturing its output. If there was any output, uh, the process continues into the next step and we discard the result. With CVS being per directory and not using a database like Git or SVN, it is not possible to pull for an update except uh, by verifying every directory is a new version of files for every directory, check if there's a new version of files available. And this check is done three times a day. Then it makes a list of ports that need to be recompiled. This step is the most complicated of the process and weighs for about a third of the lines of code. The script uses uh, CVS rdiff between the CVS release and the stable branch to show what changed since the release. And its output is passed through a few grep and aux scripts to only retrieve the package path. Uh, for example, net slash curl of the package uh, when updating it since the release. And so when you run that, you can end up seeing that, you know, net slash synapse change from version 1.11 to 1.11.2.1 or whatever. And then from that, you end up with a list of packages that have changed. From here, for each of those package paths, we have to sort out um, the SQL ports database is queried to get a full list of package paths for each package. And this will include all packages like flavors, sub packages, and multi packages. It's important because, for example, if you want to update editor slash vim, that's editors dash, uh, slash vim dash lang dash main, uh, vim for GTK, vim for GTK other languages, you know, 40 other options. And then, you know, vim with no x11, but with Ruby, optionally with non-English language support, etc. As uh, the compilation is done on a real system using the ports priv set settings and not in a siege route, we need to clean all packages installed except the minimum required for the actual build infrastructure. Uh, which is basically uh, rsync and SQL ports. Then we use DPB, the distributed package builder, where it can't be used here because it doesn't give good results for building uh, Delta packages between the release and stable. Uh, the various temporary directories used by the ports infrastructure are cleaned to be sure that everything starts with a clean environment. Then basically set an environment variable, uh, subdir list is your list of packages, bulk yes, and then make package, and it will go and compile them all. Then 
uh, once that's done, the packages need to be sent to the signing team, uh, which will sign them to prove that they came from the real OpenBSD project. Then we send out a notification, basically an email with the output of rsync to send an email telling which machine built which packages and tell people signing the packages that they're available. As this process is done on each different machine for each architecture, they don't necessarily build the same packages. For example, there's no Firefox on Spark 64, and they don't build at the same speed. You know, ARM 64 is a lot slower than AMD 64. Uh, so mails from the four different machines arrive at very different times, which led to some design changes later on. The whole process is automatic for building uh, or from building to delivering the packages for signature. The signature step requires a human and but that's the price for security and privilege separation. We don't give the automated builders access to those keys. Then there's the current design. So in the original design all the servers were running their separate cron jobs updating their own CVS ports tree and doing a very long CVS diff or rdiff. The result was uh, working, but not very practical for the people doing the signing since they would get, you know, a separate email from each batch from each different architecture. The new design only changes one thing. One machine was chosen to run the cron job, produce the package list, and then it will copy that list to the other machines, which will do the work. Once all the machines are finished, then the initial machine will gather that output and send one mail uh, so they can all be signed at once so that you're just not pestering the signing people all the time. <laughs> This became this? easier to compare the output of each architecture, and once you receive the mail, this means that every machine has finished the job and the signing can be begin. Uh, having the summary of all the build machines results in another improvement. In the logic of the script, it is possible to send an email telling absolutely no packages have been built while the process was triggered, which means something went wrong. From here, I need to check the logs to understand why there wasn't anything to build. Uh, this can be a failure, such as like the dist info file for getting uh, being forgotten in a commit. Uh, this also permitted fixing one other issue. As the dist files are shared through a common NFS mount point, if multiple machines try to fetch a dist file at the same time, both will fail to build. Now the initiator machine will download all the required dist files before starting the build on every node. Uh, as of the previous scripts, there's some reuse except that one setting email, which had to be rewritten. So yeah, like in the end, they have a similar process uh, to Pudrear where we do all the downloading ahead of time so that we actually, when we're running the build, the container it's running in doesn't have access to the network at all. And mm, doesn't have to wait for a download to finish. Yeah. Okay, very good uh, insight into OpenBSD's package building for stable. And next up, we have the OpenSense 20.7.4 release. So that came out. And the notes say that uh, this release finally wraps up the recent netmap kernel changes and tests. Realtek vendor driver was updated as well as third-party software curl, uh, libxml, openssl, php, suricata, syslogng, and unbound, just to name a couple of them. Uh, they would like to thank Sunny Valley Networks for their relentless efforts to bring set netmap fixes and improvements into FreeBSD. Thanks for that. And if you're having trouble with a stock update, try the command sequence uh, below uh, to kill the syslogng and uh, restart the service. So from the root shell, and or simply reboot from the GUI and rerun the update in case it was not fully carried out yet. They list a couple of things that are uh, noteworthy. Uh, in the system, you can switch to web GUI address selection to avoid server.bind in IPv6 first case. Then they have a fix of a defunct use default button on the web GUI listen interfaces. Then a signal author user changed when a user is modified via the web GUI so that people know about it, the people who should know. Um, they replaced the gateway widget and added a proper API endpoint for it. 
and stay fixed reading the display name attribute on the LDAP search. A uh, couple of things in the interfaces. You can change the maximum MTU value to 65,535 in accordance with RFC 791. And also updates of the wireless device section or wireless device detection fixes, prefixes, and a lexical sort interface keys for assignments. Other things uh, in the firewall section. So you can support an, uh, network exclusion and network alias types, NUT information in PF info pages, associated NUT rules, missed state keyword, and allow OR conditions in the live log. Uh, updates to DNS masquerading, unbound, uh, a couple of plugins, source and fresh reports or new reports are also available. So yeah, grab the latest update to OpenSense. Beastie bits this week start off with binutils and linker changes over at Dragonfly BSD. Yeah, so it looks like they've reverted their version of binutils back to uh, version 234 and uh, reverted to using ld.bfd temporarily uh, to solve a problem where their EFI bootloader was being compiled in a way that made it not work. Because huh. this should not make a difference for normal users. Rebuilding binaries will give you a different result, but uh, they should run either way. But it solves the problem with the bootloader. Okay. So they're using ld.bfd instead of the default ld for build world because boot slash efi having issues ld.gold is not respecting the linker script for the section merges and clang uh, build boot one.efi and loader.efi are failing. Uh, the default can be restored by setting world underscore ldver equals ld.gold in your make.com. Okay, that should fix it. Uh, then we have 28 years of NetBSD contributions as a GitHub graph. Yeah, so this is your typical GitHub uh, graph for a repo, but because of uh, you know NetBSD's history, uh, it shows all the commits going back to uh, 1992. Oh, you can see. Although looking at the level of commits, uh, it didn't really get busy until about 1996. Mm, yeah, you can see the trend there. Uh, and you know, just out of curiosity, I also looked at a, a similar graph for uh, FreeBSD, which starts June 6th of 1993 and makes a similar graph. Okay. And if I scroll down far enough through the list, eventually I find my name. <laughs> You're in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, good. Yeah, I think in total I'm at like 200 and something commits. Well, not bad. Very close to Marius Zaborski and Jason Evans, who wrote J.E. Malik. Okay, yeah, as people come and go in the project, um, some people stick around longer than others. But uh, yeah, every contribution is important. Definitely. Yeah, and you can see the little graph for each person. Mm -hmm. And you can see, you know, some people had a period where they were busy and then they went away or they've been working on it for years, but they have dry spells or whatever. Yeah, uh, life happens. Yep. Okay, but definitely interesting to have this uh, plotted and visually uh, represented to us. And uh, then we have news from OpenBSD about Bluetooth audio. Yeah, so this is... Uh, Jesper Wallen, who wrote, I have a pair of Sony WH-1000XM3 headphones and use them literally every day, most of my waking hours. I'm really addicted to music and every day would be ruined without music. I use Bluetooth to connect them to my phone and the 3.5 millimeter cable when using them on my laptop. A few days ago, I forgot the cable at home uh, and had to use the phone all day since there's no support for Bluetooth in OpenBSD. Uh, this was really frustrating and I went on a rant in the OpenBSD uh, IRC channel and Soline uh, Rappen told me about an interesting tweet from JCS, who is uh, Joshua Stein, uh, where he mentioned using the uh, Bluetooth W2 audio transceiver. 
This little device works out of the box and handles the Bluetooth part while representing itself to OpenBSD as a standard USB audio device. Uh, however, you will need to configure the SND IOD to send audio to that device. So this is a Creative Labs BT-W2 device, and it's basically a Wi-Fi to USB bridge. But instead of displaying itself as a, a Wi-Fi device or a, a, a Bluetooth device, it's as a USB audio class device. And so then it'll work with whatever operating system you happen to be using. Uh, it just shows up basically as a USB sound card and whatever sound you send to it gets sent over Bluetooth to your device, which sounds like a, a very nice solution uh, rather than messing with Bluetooth. No matter what operating system you're using, honestly, it'll probably work better. Mm -hmm. Okay, nice solution. And then we found something that might interested, uh, might be interesting to the people out there running Kubernetes or want to run Kubernetes because there is a FreeBSD slash Beehive based Kubernetes cluster. Yeah, so basically this allows you to bootstrap a um, Kubernetes K8S cluster in about one minute. Uh, you can either build a single host or distributed multi-data center environment. It supports PV and PVC uh, snapshots and uses the complete FreeBSD stack. So that's FreeBSD itself, um, the NetMap Valet switching, uh, Beehive and CBSD. And they have a little video preview of what it looks like. And you can see top running with two master nodes and three worker nodes and CBSD running and it running all the Kubernetes stuff. Cool. And yes, this is open source and all free. So try it out and enjoy it. Another thing you should enjoy is doing regular backups. And what better way to do this using Tarsnap? Because Tarsnap is your solution for backups, but the actual way to do this is using encrypted backups. Where are they encrypted? Well, before they go into the wide, wide world of the web and locally on your disk, your files that you want to backup are deduplicated and put together in a little tar archive and they are encrypted before that. And then they are stored on the web, in this case, Amazon's AWS cloud. And when one bad day, you need your files back, you use your key that you never give away to anyone else, uh, only on those machines that you need it on. And then you pull back your uh, backup on the cloud and decrypt it with your key, and then you have your files back. And then that turns a bad day into a happy day. And Tarsnap is giving you all the infrastructure for that. If you know how to use tar, then it's fairly easy because it's just a couple of uh, variations of that command. It's fairly simple and it's cheap. So tarsnap.com slash BSD now will give you all the information that you need. And it's very cheap. You put in a $5 bill or maybe or $10 if you even want to go that depends on your uh, storage needs. But that will last you for a long time because 250 pico dollars per byte of encoded data is bandwidth cost. And for storage, it only takes 250 pico dollars, which is 25 cents per gigabyte per month. And that's basically very, very cheap. So you, even for big data files, um, because of the deduplication that they do, will allow you to store a lot of data this way and cheaply. Clients are available for the BSDs, the Linuxes, the macOSs, Sequin, as well as the Windows subsystem. So no excuse for not doing a backup. Okay, it's time for the feedback and questions section for this week. People are always looking forward to that, I hear. So we might as well 
give you the feedback. Uh, not before mentioning that we are planning a special episode in the future with you asking us questions. So you should send those questions in early so we can collect them. And once we have enough. Yeah. So what we had in mind there is basically you interviewing us. So you maybe want to ask questions, things you want to know about us or things you want our opinions on and so on, rather than do keep sending the technical questions and we use those in the regular episodes. That too, yeah. Uh, but for our <laughs> our holiday special or whatever it will be, uh, we were thinking, you know, the audience gets to interview the hosts. Yeah, we turn it around. So um, it's feedback at bsdnow.tv, your email address for your questions, and we look forward to uh, reading about them. The first one who sent a question or that we covered this week is Sean with a C-Flax question. So Sean writes, okay, okay, you always want more questions. So, ah, see, someone listened to us. Excellent. Um, I'm experimenting with Pudrier on FreeBSD for the first time. Uh, is there a way to pass a flag to the C, C++ compiler when building everything? For example, let's say I want to build everything with dash F sanitize equals save dash stack and dash F sanitize equals CFI. That uh, can that be done? Uh, generally, yes. So in Pudrier, there's uh, a make.conf that gets constructed from a bunch of separate files and is passed into the environment for all the builds. So it'll be user local etc pudrier.d slash. If you make a file in there called make.conf, that will apply to every build that you do. Or you can call it the name of the package set dash make.conf or the name of the ports tree dash make.conf or the combination, I forget the exact order, but it's in the in manual and so on, where you can end up you know, saying, if I'm building from this jail, this set of ports and calling the set this, then apply these settings to it. And basically it will concatenate all of those files in least specific to most specific order. So you can do it. So for example, I use a make.conf at the top level to change the default versions of things. You know, I want this version of MySQL or MariaDB. I want this version of Python uh, and this version of you know, Ruby and a bunch of the different uh, package stuff. I want, say, newer versions rather than the default version. Yep. Uh, and you can also set regular environment variables that you would normally set, like uh, C flags in all uppercase is the general convention that almost everything you compile will, will take those flags and uh, pass them to the C compiler. Uh, it will usually append its own stuff to it as well. For C++, it's uh, CXX flags, again, all uppercase. And yeah, if you set those two variables in there, it should just do the expected. Now, you might run into problems with that, though. For example, there are a couple of specific ports that demand that they get compiled with GCC, not Clang. And I don't know if GCC supports F sanitize equals CFI. So you might run into some problems. There is a way to put if statements in that make.conf so you can say, you know, apply this setting only to a certain port or something, but uh, I don't think we need to get into that for you. But yes, uh, Pudra has a way for you to set make.conf variables for specific jails, specific ports trees, or specific sets, or any combination of those uh, so that they're compiled that way. Also, I think HardenBSD does something where they compile with options like that. The infrastructure for that might be in their GitHub somewhere as well. But it should just be a matter of setting those options in your make.com. There might also be flags you want to pass to the linker. I think that's LD flags, or the assembler is AS flags, things like that. Uh, but there's a common set of variables that almost every build system uses for that stuff. Yep, that's what Pudrier I don't does. know. I imagine there's a list somewhere. I've kind of just Porter's learned them over maybe? time. But 
hmm? could be in the porter's handbook because um possibly although in general ports tries not to mess with these things too much and hmm. do what the the package normally does for its own defaults but uh yeah there is a system in pudrer to do that and uh it's just the make.conf in the user local etc pudrer.de directory yep uh so yeah pudrer is really your uh, way of building your own custom packages however you like them uh fresh out of the oven or the, the cpu oven and whatever options you might want to use that's what you can let um pudrer apply okay so thanks for that question next up is thierry with a Raspberry Pi ZFS question. Ooh, I like the sound of that. Uh, goes like this. First of all, thanks for your show, or your shows. I like this style of the show over all my regular Linux podcasts. Hey, great, thank you. Um, way because the to-the-point content of your show is awesome. The story of Netflix and the encryption and the depth down to the hardware level a while back, the depth this show can go into and I still can follow along. Awesome. Yeah, we sometimes go deeper than we originally anticipated, but yeah. People seem to like the depth as well as the breadth of the show. So, yeah, thank you for that feedback. Uh, so, my story in question. I'm running SUSE, let's say, for 15 years on a home lab, uh, which grew out of a Pentium 3, 666 MHz. Oh, wow. VSFTP server, NX server to three machines. Uh, first one main online, second one manual failover. First one weekly backup. I also have a Dell TL4000 tape drive for backups, leftover from my old boss. I'm running KVM QEMU hypervisor, running OpenSense, plus minus 15 Docker containers like LDAP, TFTP, Nextcloud, and a lot more. For a year or two now, I use ZFS on Linux. I'm also running four Raspberry Pis, all running Raspbian. Uh, true NFS slash Pixieboot without the SD card. And I now have four Raspberry Pi images uh, mounted uh, through a loop device with IO setup, LO setup. Okay. The, there's a script extra for that to see what this does. The question, I see some fluctuating latency over my loop device. Would it be a better idea to switch from an uh, image file to a ZFS dataset setup? And yeah, it provides us the ZFS creation. Um, so yeah. it depends what you mean. So the loop thing is basically you're mounting a file as a device so that you can uh, modify the contents of it. In for that part of it, it really depends where that image file lives. Is it on like an ext4? Uh, file system or is it already on ZFS, in which case it already is a data set. Now, because you're wanting to do NFS and stuff with this, obviously it's not that you want a ZVOL for these instead of an image file. So either way, you're going to end up with an image file. It's just a question of whether it's on ZFS or on something else. The latency, it depends what the cause of the latency is. If you're modifying that image file heavily, then there might be advantages in having the ZFS dataset that it lives on have a smaller record size, so there's less write amplification. For example, if you loop mount that image file and then you change four kilobytes of it on ZFS, that's going to involve reading the entire record, which will be 128K by default, modifying the 4K that's in it, and then writing that whole 128K. So if you're making a lot of small changes to a lot of different files in that image, then it might actually be making it slower than if you used a smaller record size. I guess, mm. is the other question you're asking like about actually extracting the contents of the image and just putting it on a regular file, like a, a ZFS file system? And which is, that has many advantages, but then you still need to, you know, if you're going to write it to an SD card, you still need to get it back to an image file in the end. Uh, you know, on FreeBSD, we have a tool called MKImage specifically to take, or I think it's MakeFS is the one I'm thinking of, 
that will take a directory full of files and turn it into a disk image of a UFS file system. And it can do that as a regular user. It doesn't even need root on so unlike a mount, uh, loop mount. But yeah, so I think in the end, you know, ZFS is good. Raspberry Pi is always going to be slow. You know, you're going to need it to stay as an image file if you're going to be DDing it to an SD card in the end. So, you know, if the latency you're running into is because of the read, modify, write of ZFS, then you want to make the data set that holds these image files have a smaller record size, like say 8K instead of the default 128K. Yeah. What worries me a little bit in that setup is what kind of version on ZFS on Linux that is. It's probably 0 to 8. Probably. Because he mentions... Depends uh, on what it is. Yeah. On the Raspbians might have a bit of an older image being Debian. Uh, in the end, that doesn't make that big of a difference. Yeah. Okay. Like Even if it's 0 0.7, that's still pretty much equivalent to what's in FreeBSD 11. Okay. Yeah, just uh, making sure that this not, uh, has any side effects. Uh, okay. But yeah, it, it really depends like what kind of latency and what you're talking about. Like if you're talking about it takes a couple hundred milliseconds longer for some things, that's one thing. If you're saying, you know, I'm trying to change one file in this image and it's taking 45 seconds where it doesn't normally take that long, then that's something else. Yeah, uh, narrowing it down a bit where that might coming be coming from, um, that would help you. And then develop a solution around that. Uh, thank, thank you also for your script. And for the people who want to uh, build something similar or get a little bit of an inspiration, that's uh, good to have. And yeah, uh, greetings back to Holland. And uh, I think that pretty much wraps up this episode for this week. Uh, again, if you have any questions, show ideas, comments, uh, content that you found on the web or wherever, send that to feedback at bsdnow.tv. Also, uh, regards to our uh, listeners on... Yeah, it's, it's more listeners than watchers. Uh, listeners on Twitch, of course. Go to twitch.tv. No, wait. Twitch.com, of course. Twitch.com slash BSD now. It's twitch.tv. Oh, is it? Okay, sorry. I should use that more often. Um, yeah, so regards to those people and see you next time.